Shem. Uh, Ebenezer is two Hebrew words that come together. Eben is a stone and Ezer is help. So what he's saying is here I raise my stone of help. In other words, my God. So I just like to clarify that. So we're not all thinking of um, uh, Christmas Carol. <laughs> Want to invite our children to children's church? Kathy will meet you at the back there. And let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, um, we sang a great many truths this morning, and we could focus on any of them at this moment. But Lord, they all point in one direction. Everything we've sung this morning points to the grace we've received in Jesus Christ. And thank you for that. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you for calling us to worship. And Father, we want to pray for, first of all, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and in Poland and, and the other nations surrounding them as um, they're either in exile from their homeland or are helping uh, the exiles uh, who have to flee from the, the um, invasion that's happening in Ukraine. Uh, Father, we pray that your church there would um, shine a bright light in a very dark situation. Uh, Lord, it's so refreshing to hear of so many different churches responding so positively to the, uh, the, the um, huge um, disaster that's happened in Ukraine, and we just pray that your church would continue to do that. And Lord, we just pray for the nation as a whole, that you would deliver them, that uh, as this destruction is raining down on, on them, Lord, that they would, um, those who don't know you might be sparked to look at something more to think beyond their comfortable house and their, their decent job to, Lord, what will eternity hold? And uh, Father, we just pray for mercy on them uh, as uh, they struggle to hold their homeland. And Father, I wanna pray especially for the Russian soldiers who have been sent into this. And many of them are um, confused, they're, they've been lied to, they're not sure why they're there. Um, others are probably glad to invade. Uh, Father, we pray that you would spare many of them that uh, the, this, this horrible war would end soon and that uh, the Russian soldiers would be able to return home and Father, that you would um, bring them mercy. And Lord, I pray for Russia that this might be a changing time for them, a time of uh, upheaval, uh, a time to look again at, uh, at the materialism that uh, has come in, at the, um, the ways in which they've just uh, become comfortable in their, in their success. Uh, Lord, would you use this war in some way that we can't possibly understand to spark revival in Russia, that many would turn to Jesus Christ through this, this conflict? And Lord, I don't even know how that would look. I don't, I don't know how you would do that. And fortunately, you don't need me to tell you because you know exactly how you can do those things. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the, the witness of your church that's there, and through the truth of the scriptures. And so do those things, we pray. And Lord, we ask now that you'd be with us as we turn to your word that we would hear with ears tuned to listen, Lord, that we would listen with hearts open to receive, and Lord, that we'd receive with minds ready to process and to understand. And so Holy Spirit, come and be with us as we do this. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So for no great reason that I can think of, I decided to pick up and start reading Brave New World again. Uh, I read it in high school, but that was when the earth was still cooling and the crust was forming and, and um, the sulfuric clouds still covered the earth. And so I don't remember the details of it. I kind of remember the outline of it. Um, I think what prompted me to, to pick it up and read it again was this memory of somebody had made the comment that 
Um, George Orwell had a vision for the future, the dystopian future in 1984. And that was where Big Brother was going to watch over you and control every little thing you did and, and, uh, and that kind of stuff. And that was kind of the Soviet Union. Um, that was what was going on there. But um, or, um, um, I'm sorry, uh, Huxley's version of this dystopic future was in Brave New World, where the government would control everybody by just, you know, entertainment, sex, drugs, just, you know, keep them so placated, they would never know what's going on. So I picked it up and started reading it um, again, just, just to see what I would remember from it. Uh, the story takes place in um, 634 AF, after Ford. And why is it Ford? Well, it's, it could be because it's a nice plan words because a couple of times characters will say, oh my Ford or uh, oh, oh Ford or something like that instead of the Lord or something like those along those lines. But I think there's more to it than that. The book was written in 1932. Uh, Henry Ford pretty much ruled the world at that point. He was creating everything. He had invented or perfected the assembly line. And that looked to be the future of how everything was gonna be made. And so the way, 19, or the way Brave New World, oh, I almost said Strange New Worlds because that's a Star Trek series that's coming out and I can't wait, but put that aside, Brave New World. Uh, the way it starts is not with here's your hero and here's the protagonist and antagonist and that kind of stuff. It starts with a description of how human beings are created in the future. What will it be like? And what they are is they're on an assembly line. So these few perfect eggs are, are harvested and, and they do something to them to cause them to bud so there'll be more of them. And so they can get 30, 60, 90 uh, uh, embryos out of this. And then they're put into a, a bath so that they become um, uh, fertilized. And then each embryo is put into a glass jar. And this jar moves along this conveyor belt. And what happens on this conveyor belt is at different times, different embryos will be subjected to different things because um, in the future, there will be castes. There'll be alphas through epsilons and the alphas run the world and the epsilons clean the world. And so depending on where you're at in this conveyor belt, you'll either be irradiated so you'll come out mentally deficient or something along those lines or given some sort of disease. And so you process through this and the alphas come through pristine and perfect. And then at the end, they're not born, they're hatched. It's called the hatchery and conditioning center. And so after the babies are born, or hatched rather, they're, they're conditioned depending on which cast they're in. So the story tells about some deltas, not the bottom, but pretty low. Uh, and these babies are put out and they're, they're set in this room and set in front of them are, are uh, flowers and books. And the babies crawl up and they're looking at the books and they're playing with the flowers. And then they're given a mild shock. And the babies wail. You know, what is going on? Well, they don't want deltas to be reading because if deltas read, they may figure out what's going on and find out they're not happy being deltas. They would be better off as, as betas or something like that. So why the flowers? Well, the flowers, they shock them. They don't want them to enjoy flowers because if, if um, they're not consume, if they're, if they're interested in nature, nature's free. And so they're not consuming. And so they have to be conditioned to not like nature because they need to consume because that's part of the economy that keeps the economy going. And so they, they don't want them going into the country and enjoying that. But what they do is they stimulate them to like uh, country sports. So they have to pay to travel. They'll buy all the equipment to go play the sports, but they won't enjoy that. So they are consuming. So that's the dystopian future that, um, that Huxley kind of paints for us. And the real question is, was he 
was he warning against it or was he praising it? And it's hard to tell. It's hard to figure that out because Otis Huxley was T.H. Huxley's grandson. And T.H. Huxley was called Darwin's bulldog. Charles Darwin was a fairly timid man. He was, he was more of a thinker and a scholar. Um, and he, he wrote Origin of Species and it really was big, but it was Huxley that went out and really beat people to death with it. He was, he was angry about that. So when you get to Otis, he was a disciple of H.G. Wells. And they were racists. They were what's called eugenicists. They thought that the human, um, the human species had risen to a certain level and it was time for us to take over and eliminate the unwanted portions, the deficient portions. And so they were very compassionate, humane people. They would just sterilize them and let them live their lives in happiness and, and give them you know, something to do and to be happy with. But they would eliminate these undesirable portions of society so that humanity could evolve. Um, tragically, Adolf Hitler took that to the next step and said, no, we don't want to just sterilize them. We're going to eliminate them. And so Jews are undesirable, so we'll wipe them out. Homosexuals are undesirable, so we'll wipe them out. Blacks are undesirable, we'll wipe them out. Um, anybody who, who thinks differently, other than the Aryan race, we'll just wipe them out. It's, it's tragic. It's just a horrible idea. This is what Darwin, Darwinian evolution, taken to its logical, even ugly extreme, will produce. This is materialism come home to roost. And, and it's ugly. It means you are destined to be who you are. You are stuck. This is what you are. This is how, how nature has, has created you, and that's it. What we're going to see today in 1 in, uh, Peter here is Peter's going to tell us something that is really important for us to understand. He's going to tell us what we're built to be. Because in Christ, we're more than what nature delivers us to be. So this morning, we're going to take a look at verses 4 through 10. I, I had uh, Matthew read the bigger section because it's, it really is one thought, but we have to kind of keep it hanging together here. And so let's take a look at this. Verse 4, he starts out, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And so last week, what we heard was Peter told us to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Why? Because we have tasted that the Lord is good. And that was what was going to drive our hearts to love him more is to, to put those things away is we would taste the Lord and go, that's so much better than hypocrisy. That's so much better than envy. That's so much better than all of those things. So that's where he left us as he said that that that's what would drive us. That was what would motivate us to put those things away. And I said then that the context of that was scripture. And I promised then that what we would see Peter do next is pull out a lot of scripture and show us how it works. And this section that we're going to look at today is just loaded with scripture. So he starts off, as you come to him. This is not a command. This is not a command, come to him. He is, Peter is assuming you have already come to him because you have tasted that he is good. Because you have seen the goodness of the Lord. So in your coming, then he interrupts his thought. As you come to him, interrupts his thought and explains something about him. But if we put this back together with the following verse, it says, as you come to him, you are being built up. So we'll get to that. We'll, we'll, we'll jump ahead and get there. But right now, as you come to him, we're talking about coming to Christ. And who is this Jesus? What is, how does he explain him? He says, he is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So before we get to that being built up in him, we need to understand who him is. And Jesus is this stone. He is that living stone. 
Um, this is a metaphor that is used quite often for Jesus. Uh, so for example, uh, when describing the spiritual implications of the Exodus in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him. And the rock was Christ. So Jesus as the stone, Jesus as the rock is a metaphor that's used quite a bit in scripture. Uh, just a little technical aside, what's the difference between a rock and a stone? In English, there is no difference, right? In, in Greek, it's the same thing. It's Petra and lithos. And when it comes down to it, there's really no difference. So if we're using them both, and, and to prove that, there's a place in, in, in a few minutes where he'll talk about, where he'll quote uh, some Hebrew poetry and use stone and rock in, in parallel. In other words, they're basically the same thing. So just wanted to justify my switching to rock here in 1 Corinthians 10. Jesus is that spiritual rock that followed them. He was the one that provided for them. And, and if I can just go off on this for just a little bit, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. Why? Because he struck the rock. Doesn't that seem extreme? Isn't God just being really picky about that? God told him the second time, go out to the rock and speak to it, and I'll cause water to flow out of it. If we go back and we look at 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. So the first time the people complained about wanting water, Moses was told, take the staff, go out and strike the rock, and water came out of it. The second time he said, go talk to the rock. How many times was Jesus stricken for us? Only once. So Moses, what he did was he adulterated the, the gospel at that point for them. So this, this imagery of Jesus as our rock is really important. It was so important it kept Moses out of the promised land. So this rock then, this, this rock that is Jesus, as you come to him, he's living. He's not a dead stone. He's a living stone. And in, his, in the sight of God, he is chosen and he is precious. So what, what Peter's doing here is he's alluding to Isaiah 28, 16. Um, and he quote, uh, we'll quote the, uh, the Greek translation of that in verse six, but let me just read it real quick here so we understand what, what it means by he is chosen and precious. In 28, 16, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid, a, laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So that's the Hebrew version of it. So this is what he means when he says he's a living stone who's chosen and precious. And he's going to pick that illustration up in, in uh, verse six and show us what that means. But let's deal with it now because it's really important to what comes next even though we'll, we'll touch it again in verse six. So Isaiah's promise that God has laid a foundation in Zion, a, a tested and a precious stone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes in him will not be in haste or be put to shame. Um, this promise is addressed to the leaders, scoffers who rule the people in Jerusalem. That's who this promise is made to. There will be a rock. There will be a, a new foundation laid, a cornerstone, um, that you have rejected. And this one, however, will be precious and perfect and, 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 and uh, beautiful. It's be the one that the Lord has chosen. And that's exactly who Jesus was. He was the cornerstone who was rejected by the leaders. That's who crucified him, was the leaders of the people. So what God is promising in Isaiah 28 is he's going to lay a new cornerstone. There's going to be a new thing happening. This, this is going to be something extremely different. And so now we get to verse six, as you come to him, 
you yourselves like living, I'm sorry, verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. So picture this living stone laid as a, as a foundation, as a cornerstone. It's, it's the thing that the building is rooted on. What do you build on top of that? Do you put dead stones on top of that? That's a living stone. You put living stones on top of that. So here's the great thing is Jesus is our cornerstone. He's the new temple. And we are the stones being brought in and built up, put on top of that to make it into a new temple. We are a new temple. We're a temple made out of living stones. And so this is why, in like, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple? Not you live in God's temple, not you will migrate to God's temple. Do you not know you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And what did Peter tell us earlier in, at the end of chapter one? Be holy as God is holy. You are holy. You are a temple. You are living stones. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are the temple. But then Peter goes on, he says, to be a holy priesthood. Now, is he mixing his metaphors here? How can we be the temple and the priesthood at the same time? Well, if we've seen anything from Peter's writing so far, he is extraordinarily careful. He is not mixing his metaphors. He didn't forget what he was saying. What he's doing is he's taking that imagery of the Old Testament temple and he's saying, what is that? What's going on? We are a holy priesthood. So that's, that's what these living stones are doing. They're not building a physical temple that we can point at and say, that's where the temple of God is. It's building a people who are the spiritual temple, the, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit and a holy priesthood all in one shot, all at the same time. So we are those living stones. And what is it that we're called to do? He says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You are a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. And your calling is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We're not going to offer sacrifices to appease God. Jesus did that once for all. We're not going to re-offer Jesus. He stands inside the Holy of Holies. There is no point to re-offering him. He stands before God and offers himself. So then the question is, what are our spiritual sacrifices? What is it that we're offering? Well, we're not offering the blood of bulls and goats that would not satisfy. It wouldn't work. So if you look through the New Testament and just pick up a couple of places where he talks about the sacrifices that we offer, for example, Revelation, or, uh, Revelation Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So your first, the first issue of spiritual sacrifice that we offer is worship. And it's not confined to Sunday morning. Though Sunday morning is extraordinarily important, this is when we come together as living stones and we worship together. But the first thing that we can do to offer to God a spiritual sacrifice that's acceptable in his sight is worship him, is to delight in him. We can do that in church and out of church. It's what we do throughout the week. And Sunday morning is just a time when we get to do it with other people. What's another thing that the New Testament says is our spiritual uh, sacrifice? 
Philippians 4.18, Paul is talking about what he's received. He says, I received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and a pleasing to God. So Paul is saying, you, you Philippians have sent so much to me. I am, I am well supplied. And what you've done in giving to me is a spiritual sacrifice acceptable. It's a, it's a pleasing aroma to God. God is delighting in the fact that you're supporting me. Hebrews 13, 16, the other half of that verse, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So what, what the imagery here is, is not just money. It's not just how much money you put in. It's also to do good and to share what you have. The act of generosity, the, the, the overflowing nature of your heart, the giving of yourself, the giving of your time, the giving of your space, the giving of your attention, all of those things. Think of those as spiritual sacrifices. This is something I'm offering to the Lord to stand and listen to you. This is something I'm offering to the Lord to come and give you to help changing a tire on your car. This is something I'm giving to the Lord to support you with some money because I know you're having a hard time. It is a generous heart is a spiritual sacrifice. So it is to do good. In other words, it's not limited to worship and to giving. It is the act of generosity, the recognition that, Lord, you have poured so much into me. I am not going to keep it here. I'm going to flow it out. I'm going to give it away. So this is what you have been called to do. You are a, a holy priesthood. You are a temple of the living God. And you are to be the center of spiritual sacrifice and to give away and to give and to give and to give. But there's a, a qualifier on that. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. So these, these, um, these sacrifices, listen to the context they're in. They are the work of the Spirit to God through Jesus. So our lives, our worship is properly, thoroughly Trinitarian. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son. It, it is who we are as Christians is formed and shaped by the work of the Holy Spirit the God, the father who has, who has chosen us and God, the son who's redeemed us. It, all of that comes together. It is offered to God through Jesus Christ. To be the church of Jesus Christ is a tremendous privilege. Think about the Jews back in the day, there was a wall around the temple. And if you were fortunate, you could go through that first gate. You were a Jew, not a Gentile. And then you get into the second gate into that, that next court. And that was the court of the women. And the women could go that far, and then you'd go through the next one, and now you'd be in the court of the men. And that would be that would be special privilege, but then you couldn't go any further because the next one would be where the priests and the Levites go. And then in the in the in the center of that was the temple. And only a few priests would get to go inside the temple. They would have to be chosen. And then there was only one priest at one time a year that would get to go into the very center of that temple. And that was the high priest on the day of atonement. He would go in behind the veil. Otherwise, you, wherever you were in your station in life, would just kind of look and go, God's in there. That's incredible. And, and that was where you were kept to. Church, you don't have that problem. You have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. You just barge right in. Our hope is anchored behind the veil. We have access, unmitigated, unrestricted, unmediated access to God because you are the church of Jesus Christ. 
How wonderful is that? You get to offer your spiritual sacrifice to God personally. You don't hand it to a priest and go, go give it to him. You walk in and say, Lord, I, I did this for you. This is my offering to you because I love you, because I've tasted and I've seen that you are so good. Thank you. This is a great privilege. And God is at work at us, Jew and Gentile. Verse six, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How do we get to do this? How do we offer these things through Jesus Christ? You believe in him. Once again, even from Isaiah, we're seeing justification by faith alone, not by works. So don't think your sacrifice that you take in behind the veil and you offer to the Father is God going to go, okay, now I like you. He's inviting you, come in, come in, come in. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Come in, come and see me. So every, and that's Jew and Gentile, both rolled up together. So even here, we see justification by faith, not by works. Now, this raises a really tough question. What about those who reject him? And Peter does what he's been doing, is going to quote some scripture for us. Verses 7 and 8. So the honor is for you who believe. But those who do not believe, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. So what Peter's doing here is quoting Psalm 118, which, which Joel had us read this morning. I was really happy when he said, let's read that. I was, yes, that's great. We'll get the context. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broke. Oh, I'm sorry. So that's, uh, that's uh, Psalm 118. To understand what's going on here, what we have to do is go to Luke chapter 20 for a moment. And so what happens in Luke chapter 20 is Jesus brings this very thing up. He quotes uh, um, Psalm 118, 118 in verse 18. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And, everyone, uh, um, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This always confused me. So do I want to fall? Do I want to be uh, dashed to pieces or do I want to be crushed? The answer to this is you don't want to be either. <laughs> don't do either. That's what's going on. So let me justify that a little bit. Um, chapter 20 starts with the chief priests and the scribes coming to Jesus and asking about the source of his authority. By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus' response is, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you if you tell me who's authority John baptized. Where's John's baptism from? Is it from heaven or from man? You tell me. And they can't figure it out, so they go, we don't know. Why? Because they're terrified. They're afraid that if they say from man, that the people will stone him because they took John to be a, a prophet. And if they say from God, well, that's stupid. <laughs> Why didn't you listen to him if it's really from God? So this is the idea Jesus brings up there, I think, is he's showing these are the people who fell on the rock and shattered. Their position of power and authority is so fragile. It's so delicate that if they, if they answer truthfully and say, John's baptism clearly was from God, they're done. And if they answer deceitfully and say, well, it was from man, they're done. They're, they're about to be shattered. They're about to be broken. It, it's not going to work. The second thing Jesus th does in chapter 20 is he tells the parable of a vineyard. And the owner has set up this vineyard and let it out to tenants. And, and the owner sends servants to the tenants and says, give me my due. I, I get part of this. And they beat them and they stone them and they kill them. And so finally, the owner sends his own beloved son, assuming that the tenants will respect him. But the parable ends. But then the tenants saw him. They said to themselves, this is the heir. 
let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then shall the owner of the vineyard do to them? Will he come and destroy, or he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others? When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief corners or become the cornerstone. This is the rock that crushes. He will come and destroy them. So when you come to this chief cornerstone, you have a choice. You can either face him with truth. You can embrace him. You can, you can not fall on him and be dashed like tripping over a rock or be crushed by him. Instead, what you can do is come to the living stone. Just like Peter said at the beginning, as you come to this living stone, you're made into a living stone yourself and built into a temple. So this morning, don't fall on the stone. Don't come up with your lame excuses for who Jesus is. The logic will unravel at some point and don't let the stone fall on you. Now is the time. Call out to him, turn to him, go to him. Go to the stone, don't let it crush you. So that's the fate of those who turned against him. And and so listen to what what, um, Peter says when it talks about that giving it to others, giving the vineyard to others. So the people who it was offered to said, we don't want it. And they crucified him, crucified the son. The rock is then given, or the uh, the vineyard is taken from them and given to others. Uh, Beginning in verse nine, but you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may exclaim or proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So those who rejected him, they're, they're out of the, the vineyard. They've lost. And instead, Peter then lists a bunch of scriptures and applies them to the church. He starts with, you are uh, a chosen race. Um, I don't think that's the best way to translate that. The, 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 the idea there is more um, family um, or uh, people. The, the word race for different types of people is actually racist. It was how they could justify owning slaves was by saying, well, they're a different race. Um, there's one race, the human race. There are different peoples. And so that's, that's kind of an old way, not the best way to translate it. You are a chosen people. And I think what Peter's getting at is from uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 15. Yet the Lord set his, heart, uh, set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all people as you are this day. He has chosen and he has offspring are both in that same sentence. So that's what he's looking at. He's looking at Deuteronomy 15, uh, 10, 15 and saying, we are a chosen people. This is who God has made us. The idea of being chosen, isn't that how Peter started in chapter one? We are foreknown by the father. He's elected us. He's chosen us. He's the one who's called us into into the kingdom of his son. So we're a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This comes from Exodus uh, 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the tenants forfeited that. They didn't want to give God what his due was. They didn't recognize that it was his vineyard. They thought they had it for themselves. But we, those who God has called, those who God has saved, we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. 
It's, it's an amazing promise. You are a priesthood. Don't forget your spiritual sacrifices. You're a holy nation. There is the church. There is the church that is, that God knows to be the church. And then there's the church that we experience, which is not always lining up together exactly. But the, the people of God are, are his chosen, uh, his, his holy nation. He says, it's a people for his own possession. This comes from Malachi 3.17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his, own, uh, his son who serves him. Why are you his own possession? Because he spared you, because he called you, because he extended his great mercy we heard about earlier. What's this leading up to? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Priests, royal priesthood, your job is to proclaim the excellencies of him. Your role is to demonstrate, to live the excellencies of him, to show this is what God has done in us. He has made us a different people. Put away malice, envy, hypocrisy, and show the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I think this is what Paul is hitting at in Colossians 1. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So go out and tell people about this. This is what God has done. He, he is most excellent because he's done these things. And then Paul, uh, Peter ends on, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you are not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is from Hosea chapter one. Hosea is one of the more disturbing books of the Bible because God told him, go out and marry a prostitute. And so the prophet goes out and marries a prostitute and she will not stay home. She keeps running around. And at a certain point, he just says, she's gone. I don't know where she's at. And God tells him, Hosea, go get your wife and bring her back. It's, it's a graphic. It's a gritty. It's supposed to be uncomfortable because what God's saying is, this is what my people are like. Hosea was written just before or around the time of the exile of the, the northern tribes. What they were doing was acting like a prostitute. What Hosea is then told to do is have children with her. So he goes and he buys her back and he has children with her and he names them Noami. And I can't remember how to say uh, no mercy. Loami and, and the other one. He names his child no mercy and not my child, not my people. How would you like that as a child's name? Hey, not my people, come here. <laughs> okay. It's a picture. It's an illustration. God's trying to say, look, this is what I'm going to do to my people. I'm going to send them into exile. But the great news is that he's going to call them back too. So what happens is later in, in chapter two, God looks at him and he says, look, you were not my people. You are my people. You, you hadn't received mercy. Now you've received mercy. He's talking about the people he's drawing back from exile. As they come back in, you are my people. And you are, I'm going to extend mercy to you. The startling thing, the most confusing, the most mind-blowing thing is Romans chapter 9. Paul applies that to the church. You were not a people, right? We were Jews and we were Gentiles. We were two different people. We never got together. We never became one. But now you are a people. I have drawn you together. You're a royal priesthood. You're my holy nation. And I've drawn you all together. And so take this illustration, and it fits perfectly with what happens with the church. Is once we were not a people, we were disparate, we were all over the place. 
religiously, spiritually, all of that. But now in the church, God has drawn us all together. We are his people. Why has he drawn us together? Because he's shown us mercy. He's extended to us his mercy. This is who we were built to be. So when Audix Huxley tells us this story of these, these clanking jars, I just I can picture the hear the rattle of the jars moving down the conveyor belt as different things happen to him. As materialism says, what you were born is what you are. The gospel comes along and says, no, no, no. You can be so much more. How would you like to be a people? How would you like to be a holy people, a, a chosen people? How would you like to become a temple to the living God? How would you like to be priests, royal priests, holy priests? This is possible. This is There's a potential for this to happen. This can come to you. How? As you come to him, as you come to Jesus Christ, that's what makes all the difference in the world because he was the stone that was rejected, but chosen. So this morning, don't reject the stone. Don't do it. If, if you reject the stone, there's a really good chance you wind up in one of those test tubes heading down the track to be whatever. The, the nation is just going to tell you this is who you are. You can't change. Just find your inner you. Find who you really are inside. <laughs> I found him. He's not that great. <laughs> I don't really like him that much. <laughs> I would rather have him made new. Thank you very much. So this is the promise. This is where Peter is leading us. He's told us how we got saved in chapter one. Now, what does it mean to be saved? Priests, go proclaim his excellencies. What has he done for you? It is amazing in, our, in his sight that, that he has done these things. Um, we mentioned earlier the angels, angels long to look into this. They're blown away when they hear about this. The prophets of old go, what did I just say? And he's talking about this, this truth that we are now a holy people brought together, made new through Jesus Christ by his great mercy for his worship. Let's pray. Lord, we, I, I, you know, when I think of these things, Lord, I think I can't do this. I, I can't be holy as you are holy. Lord, I, I can't live up to the expectation that you've laid out here, this, this high and lofty thing that you've done. And so, Lord, when I read this, I'm just so grateful that it says you are doing this. This is your work. So, Lord, would you continue your work in me? Lord, would you continue your work here at Trinity Community Church and all of us? Draw us more to you. Conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that it is your work. Holy Spirit, seal us for the day. Sanctify us. Jesus, wash us in your blood. Make us clean and pure. And, Lord, I pray that you would put in our mouths, put in our hearts and our heads, your excellencies, how wonderful it is that you've done these things for us so that we may proclaim to the nation, our God is great. And Lord, that they would see an inexplicable thing, a living temple, a temple made up of human beings, stones that sing out, stones that cry your name, that stones would be made sons of Abraham. What a glorious promise, Lord. Thank you. Help us to live this way, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Stand as we sing.
can go ahead and grab a seat. Um, you can also go ahead and grab your uh, communication card in the seat back in front of you. If you'd like to let us know, um, I don't know, that you're here, that you love the sermon, that I got eight points wrong and you're going to highlight them all for me. Um, let us know how we can pray for you, um, whatever you do. So go, you can go ahead and fill that out. There's a black box in the back. Uh, you can drop it in the way, drop it in the box on the way out, drop it in and out. Um, so a couple announcements really quick. Uh, six Essentials, uh, that's a class we're teaching on Monday nights, Six Essential Christian Beliefs. Uh, last week we did the Trinity. So we'd said, basically what I said was, hi, you're a new swimmer. Here's a brick. Here's the deep end of the pool. And then I pushed him in. Because Trinitarian theology is some of the most mind-blowing parts of Christianity. And we got kind of heavy into it. So my promise to you is, it's not going to be like that the rest of the week. Uh, what we're going to do the, tomorrow is God the Father and God the Spirit, and that won't be quite so hairy. That'll, that'll be a bit more straightforward. So um, uh, please join us. I promise I'll bring snacks if you show up, okay? So if nobody shows up, I'm not bringing snacks. Um, usually we do a third Friday uh, prayer um, in the, the uh, well, we've been meeting at Kyle's house or here at the facility, but this month we're going to do it a little different. Uh, we're going to do a uh, fourth Friday, and we're going to join with some other churches together here in this facility. So we'll be joining um, other churches who Joel's invited. Uh, we'll start here at seven o'clock. We'll have some worship music and some uh, some time to pray for our nation and for our world. So please don't show up Friday, but show up the following Friday, if you would. And then the best part is Jeannie bought us lunch. So this is her last Sunday with us. Our matriarch is departing. And so what we want to do is invite everybody in, right after the service, join us in the fellowship hall behind me, and we'll have some lunch together and we'll celebrate uh, Jeannie and, and uh, uh, express our love for her and, and wish her uh, farewell as she moves on. So um, with that, can I ask you to rise for our benediction? Um, this is the other thing Joel did extremely well when we didn't meet this week is he read from Revelation, and I'm going to do the same thing. Revelation chapter one, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him. And even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen.